I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. Defending Daniel and prophecy. Uh, This is a unique message I'm going to be giving. I've searched online, and I actually have not found a message quite like the one I'm going to give you today. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'm saying it's too hard to find. (laughs) And so we did last week, last time we met, rather, um, on the issue of Daniel, we did chapters 7 and 8 on prophecy. We showed the amazing, detailed foreknowledge of the book of Daniel in chapters 7 and 8. And if you're watching online, check the video description. I will put a link to that video in the description for this video. But the natural question that comes up is, okay, that sounds really good, Mike. Those prophecies sound very convincing, but how do I know it's true? How do I know that Daniel is a reliable source to show me that God has prophesied? And so today we're going to handle critics' attacks on Daniel. This has actually been on my heart to do, is to not only share evidence for the Bible, that's the series we're in, evidence for the Bible. So I'm going to share evidence for the Bible, but also to share how how the critics attack it. What are the strongest punches the critics can throw at our evidence? And I want to show you how the Bible endures and, and the critics walk away with broken knuckles while the Bible is, is yet untouched. So today we handle critics' attacks on Daniel. Now the Bible is always under attack. And perhaps no book except maybe Isaiah has been attacked as much as the book of Daniel. So here's Daniel in the lion's den. And I think this is actually a very appropriate picture because <laughs> Daniel's in the lion's den. This is a target for critics. They hack and slash at the book of Daniel And the reason is because it has such fulfilled prophecy in it that would prove the Bible true. So Daniel's a great case in point of the type of attacks that come against the Bible and how the Bible stands when you do the research and do the work to try to see were they right or wrong, those critics. So let me read to you. Now, I'm not quoting Wikipedia as an authoritative source. (laughs) I'm simply quoting as an example to you of the type of thing that people would see with the book of Daniel. On a Wikipedia article called Authorship of the Bible, it says this about the book of Daniel. It says, The book of Daniel presents itself as the work of a prophet named Daniel who lived during the 6th century BCE. The overwhelming majority of modern scholars date it to the 2nd century BC. The author, writing in the time of the Maccabees, two weeks ago we talked about the Maccabean Revolt and Antiochus Epiphanes and all that, so you might want to look into that. Uh, That'll be online. Um, To assure his fellow Jews that their persecution by the Syrians would come to an end and see them victorious. It seems to have constructed his book around the legendary Daniel mentioned in Ezekiel, a figure ranked with Noah and Job for his wisdom and righteousness. Now, I'm not going to here deconstruct this whole sentence, but what I want to show you is this is the type of attack that they bring. This is now, if I was on an online community giving evidence for prophecy, and I do do Daniel 7 and 8, because I just watched Mike's last video, and it was like, yeah, man, that's solid stuff. Guaranteed, some atheist will go Google, will find Wikipedia, and will cut and paste this exact quote right into a response to your statement of how the Bible's trustworthy. In response to that, you need this video. (laughs) You you need what I'm going to share with you guys today. Um, So you can actually summarize all of the attacks on Daniel with one idea. It was written late. Daniel was written in the second century after the things happened, not in the sixth century before they happened. Now, this is is important just to realize that everything else I'm going to share with you will sound like, uh, like, like a lot of bunch of little details, but they're all just the way the critics try to prove Daniel was written after the fact. For instance... With Ezekiel, I gave a prophecy about the fall of the city of Tyre and Alexander the Great coming and destroying. Well, the critics don't say that was written after it happened. They just say it doesn't apply. They're wrong. I mean, they're clearly wrong when you study the passage. But they don't attack it because they all they basically agree Ezekiel was written before this happened. But with Daniel, their attack on Daniel is different. They say, oh yeah, that's definitely about Antiochus Epiphanes. It was just written after it happened. So... The question is going to be, when was Daniel written? When was Daniel written? Now, historically, Daniel was written in the 6th century BC, about 530 BC, by Daniel. Uh, The book itself claims this in no less than 10 places in the book of Daniel. So Daniel, based on the vast majority of history, was believed traditionally to say, hey, 
Daniel was written by Daniel. When did he write it? He wrote it when it says he wrote it. This is basically what was always believed. The Jews always thought this. It wasn't a later idea. Um, Jesus thought this. He says so himself. Um, several other people, Josephus, a lot of people thought that Daniel wrote Daniel in the 6th century. But the critics, they'll say this. Daniel's a forgery from about 165 BC, give or take a few years, depending on who you ask. It was not written by Daniel, and it's not prophecy. It's history. So let's be clear. They're saying that the book of Daniel is a lie. Not that we're just misunderstanding it. No, no, we're just, they're saying we're being fooled by a purposeful, deliberate lie. That's what they're saying. This actually first was promoted by a guy named Porphyry, who is a third century AD critic of the Bible. He was a pagan philosopher, meaning he, he believed in pagan deities. So this guy like thought Zeus was for real. This is a pagan philosopher. He wrote 15 books against Christians called Against the Christians. <laughs> There's the names of his various 15 books. But if you could summarize his reason for why he thought Daniel was written after the fact, it was simply he thought prophecy was too good to be true. So Daniel had to have written it after the fact. He didn't really have a more sophisticated argument than that. In other words, he assumed it was written after the fact. That's about the first historical time we have somebody doubting the book of Daniel. So in hundreds and hundreds of years, nobody did, and all of a sudden this one guy doubts it. He's a pagan philosopher, maybe not the most reliable source. But then for about 1,500 years, you don't really get a lot of argument about the book of Daniel after that. Until about the 1800s, you have this new revived criticism, the 17 and 1800s, against the book of Daniel. Um, so again, he said it was written about 164. So here's the question. I'm gonna, I, I like the old adage, right? Tell them what you're going to tell them. Tell them and then tell them what you told them. And so here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to show you. Here's the arguments the critics have. I'm going to give you seven ones. Prophecy is impossible. That's the first argument they have. Sound familiar? That's what Porphyry said, right? Bad history. Daniel contains bad history, things that didn't actually happen in history. Daniel uh, has, there's linguistic arguments. There's, and this will be where it gets complicated. Number three is probably going to be the most complicated issue we'll get into. Um, the linguistic arguments in Daniel. They'll say Daniel had multiple authors. So parts of it were written before you know, maybe even in the 6th century BC, but then parts were written after it happened. Um, then others will say, well, the theology in Daniel is too advanced to have been written in 530 BC. Others, people will, other people will say that the Bible has Daniel in the Jewish Bible in the writings instead of the prophet. So it's in the wrong section of the Bible, somehow indicating that, see, it wasn't really considered a prophet. He wasn't considered to be this old source, but a new one. And finally, straws. I'll explain that when we get to it. <laughs> All right, so let's deal with them one at a time here. Number one, prophecy is impossible. Now, this argument um, is somewhat undefeatable, but not be it's because it's unreasonable, not because it's reasonable. Let me explain. It's a circular argument. So it starts with the idea right here, prophecy is impossible. So you confront them with Daniel's prophecy, and they go, well, he must have written it after it happened. Why? Because prophecy is impossible. Therefore, prophecy is impossible. You see, it's just circular. It's just like I'm assuming it. I'm assuming it's the way it is. We assume it didn't happen, and therefore we're forced to come up with some explanation of Daniel. But since Daniel's so specific about Antiochus and the details about these things, that they go, well, obviously it's about Antiochus, so it must have been written afterward. It's just an assumption, um, so it's a late date. This is a blind faith position. And note this, believers. Scholars and smart people will often hold blind faith positions of unbelief when it comes to the Bible. You will see this over and over again. Let me give you an example of the poster boy of, of modern-day atheism, one of them anyways, one of the scholarly poster boys of modern-day atheism, Bart Ehrman. Let me give you a quote from Bart from his own blog where he says, that he has tried to explain on several occasions why a miracle can never be shown on historical grounds to have happened, even if it did. These, these are his words. So, Bart Ehrman, who, he's an atheist. Some, well, he, sometimes he says he's atheist, sometimes he says he's agnostic, so people get to argue about it, and he likes people arguing about him, I think. But, but basically, Bart Ehrman says... As a historian, which he's not, he's actually a textual critic, but he says he's a historian. So he says, as a historian, 
I'm not allowed to say that a miracle happened. So therefore, no matter what evidence there is, say prophecy, say for the resurrection of Jesus, no matter what evidence there is, I have to postulate some other explanation. I have to explain it in some non-miraculous way. So Daniel had to have written it after it happened. Um, You can't change this person's mind. You can't change this person's mind. Uh, Maybe God can, but I don't see how I'm going to, except to, to say... That's circular reasoning, and that should bother you. <laughs> so, But we move on. So we move on. So number one, if you're just assuming prophecy can't happen, then why are we just having this conversation in the first place? But then number two, bad history. So they claim that there's bad history in the book of Daniel, that Daniel says things happened that never really happened. One of the targets is a guy named Belshazzar. There he is, Belshazzar, drinking out of the cup from the temple as the writing on the wall is behind him, if you're familiar with the passage in the book of Daniel. Daniel 5, it says that Beli, that's short for Belshazzar, that's official right there, he was the last king of Babylon, and Daniel says that he was Nebuchadnezzar's son. So right, Beli, Nebuchadnezzar, he was, Nebuchadnezzar's son was a guy named Belshazzar, and he was the last king of Babylon when the Persians took over, the Medo-Persian Empire took over. Okay, that's real simple. But the critics, they say, They say, and said for many, many years, Belshazzar did not exist. Daniel invented him just to use him as a way of encouraging random people and Jewish people. He just made him up. He just made him up. Now, they had a reason for saying this because we have lists of Babylonian kings that go back in several different histories. We have these lists. Like, for instance, Herodotus, in his history, he has... Lists of Babylonian kings that don't include Belshazzar. Belshazzar's name is not on the list. And so he's not showing up in history. But also, Nabonidus, a different guy, he's the last king of Babylon, according to these historians. So we have a few lists, and they all they don't all agree with each other, but they all agree that Belshazzar is not on the list. And Nabonidus shows to be the last king of of Babylon. And so for years, this attack was being made. But fortunately for us, archaeology being still kind of a new thing, them digging up stuff and and checking it out the way they do nowadays, it's really a science now. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. Keeps proving the Bible over and over again. Well, in 1853, something called the Nabonidus Cylinder was discovered. You're looking at a picture of it there. It was a clay cylinder from before the fall of Babylon. So we're not just talking about histories. We're talking about an actual contemporary report from before the fall of Babylon, right before the fall. They actually found four of them all together. Three more were found in 1888. But here's a quote from the Nabonidus cylinder. It says, May it be that I, Nabonidus, king of Babylon, never fail you, and may my firstborn, Belshazzar, worship you with all his heart. So wait there was a guy named Belshazzar. And he was in the royal family. He was the son of Nabonidus. This is very interesting. So then the critics break their knuckles on this particular issue, saying Belshazzar didn't exist. Daniel's shown to have better history than they did. Very interesting, right? Then there's another quote from one of the same cylinders that says that Nabonidus entrusted the army to his oldest son, his firstborn, which we know as Belshazzar from the previous quote, the troops in the country he ordered under his command, he let everything go, entrusted the kingship to him, and himself, he started out for a long journey. The military forces of Akkad, marching with him, he turned to Tima, deep in the west. And so we find out that not only was there a Belshazzar, but that he was made co-regent with his father. His dad left Babylon and went off to fight foreign wars like King Arthur you know, or, uh, you know, King Richard, excuse me, and he would, he would go off, Richard the Lionheart, and he went off into the Holy Land to fight his wars, and he let other people run the country while he's gone. This is not an uncommon thing. Nabonidus did this. So Belshazzar was co-regent with him. This is actually consistent with what we read in Daniel 5.7. Belshazzar's under threat. He's really upset. And he's got this writing on the wall, and he's like, if someone can tell me what this means, I will make him, I'll give him the best prize I can, I'll make him the third ruler in the kingdom. Why didn't he make him the second ruler in the kingdom? Well, because Belshazzar already was the second ruler in the kingdom. So he could make him the third ruler in the kingdom. And this marries very well with the biblical account. This is consistent with what we know. 
Belshazzar therefore exists. And that critical attack saying Daniel, actually, Daniel turns out has better history than Herodotus in this case, which is pretty important. So the critics then respond and they go, ha ha, yes, but you've left out one detail, Mike. Belshazzar was the son of Nabonidus, not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel clearly says that Belshazzar was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. It says it in several cases. So let me explain a little bit of this family tree to explain how this critical attack falls short. King Nabonidus, there he is right there. King Nabonidus, the final king of Babylon, who was co-regent with his son, the other final king of Babylon, since they were both kings at the same time. He was married to Queen Natokris. Don't laugh at my... Okay, so Queen Natokris, we know this, that she was either... Here's the scholarly debate. Natokris is a real person. They know she existed, but she was either the wife of Nebuchadnezzar or the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. They're not sure in what sense she was the queen of Babylon. We don't know if she was the wife or the daughter. Either way, when Nabonidus became king, he at some point married Natokris, and this seemed to help him glue his attachment to the crown because he, Nabonidus, was not descended from Nebuchadnezzar. So he can't look up to Nebuchadnezzar and say, oh, that's my dad, I can claim the throne. So he marries either Nebuchadnezzar's wife or his daughter. Let's say, to make it harder on us, that Natokris is his daughter. Okay, and that seems more likely to me. But let's just say that that's the case. Well, they produced their firstborn, Belshazzar. There he is looking it up as mom, going, you look awful strange, mom. <clears throat> so this means that if Queen Natokris was Nebuchadnezzar's daughter that that meant Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's grandpa. There he is right there in all of his wonderful power with a feather duster in his hand. Now you might say, but Mike, grandpa is not the same as son. But those of you who are Bible students, you probably already know the solution to this problem. It's really normal in that culture to use the word father to represent your grandfather, your great-grandfather, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Scripture says things like, you will be going to your fathers. I mean, how many fathers have you got? Yes, every single male who is in my bloodline before me is my father. That was a normal use of the word. Normal use of son, normal use of father. The Jews said to Jesus, uh, we are Abraham's children. Abraham is our father. Um, and there's other examples throughout the Old and New Testament of this sort of thing. So... It was especially useful for Belshazzar to constantly remind people and call himself the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Why? Because it tied him to the Babylonian throne. It helped bolster his authority, helped bolster his claim to power. Nebuchadnezzar was an extremely famous and powerful man in the Babylonian regime. So this is a big deal for him. Um, so there you go. I think that, that that completely discredits critics' attacks on Belshazzar, although you will still hear them said over and over again, and the irony is that those who have heard the responses rebutting the arguments will still say them. That's the strangest thing. Bible critics have the amazing ability to repeat criticisms they know are invalid. I've seen this over and over again. Um, but yet, that's why we as believers are, you know, we do well to be armed with these sorts of things. So Belshazzar, there's the attacks and there's the defenses. Darius the Mede. Here's another one. Um, I'm not going to spend too much time on Darius the Mede because it's just too much to take in. There's too many people to learn about and too much of history to absorb on this issue, so I'm going to try to summarize it for you. The critics say that Darius the Mede, who's recorded in Daniel as being the next guy who's in charge after the, the, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire takes over Babylon, they come and they take over Belshazzar's feasting, they lose it in one night, they lose the kingdom. You know, after the many, many Tekel Ufarsin is written on the wall. Okay, so then they come in and guess who's the next king in Babylon? It's a guy named Darius the Mede. Darius the Mede. Now the critics say this, Darius didn't exist. Darius didn't exist. Sound familiar? They say, hey, he just, you know, Daniel, whoever wrote it, just made up Darius. Didn't know whether he existed or not because he wrote it in the 200s or the 100s in the second century. There's four things that we need to know in dealing with the issue of Darius the Mede. The first is this. According to Daniel, his kingship was given in Daniel 5.31 and in Daniel 9.1. We read about Darius the Mede. And we find out that his authority as king was given. It's, it's like passive verbs. It says he received the kingdom. And then later in Daniel 9, it says that he was made king. 
So he wasn't a king who was already a king who conquered and took over, but rather he was made king and king of Babylon. His authority is limited. He just has the Chaldean reign or the reign of Babylon, the same area that Nabonidus ruled, the same area Belshazzar ruled, not the larger area that the Medo-Persian Empire ruled. What does this mean? Well, it means he was a co-regent. It means he was also, like Belshazzar, ruling some of the territory while Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians, was actually in charge. Um, in Daniel 5.28, we seem to read about how Daniel prospered, it says, in the reign of Darius the Mede and Cyrus the king of the Persians. And so it seems to be happening at the same time. Happens at the same time. I think that's that's important to realize. The, Daniel seems to present him as a co-regent, which suddenly makes a lot more sense because the fourth fact is that Darius may well be a title, meaning the, because the word Darius is tied to the word king. It may be that the guy's name wasn't Darius, but his title was Darius. And they used names and titles interchangeably back then. It was normal. Um, they wouldn't necessarily say the president it would just become his title. Uh, we read about things, titles like this with Herod. Herod was a, a name originally, but it became a title. Um, we read Caesar. Caesar is a title that was carried from different Roman rulers. They all had the same title. Darius may well be a title. So this opens up a great explanation of who's Darius. Several people are suggested. A guy named Guberu. Nice name. Another guy named Ugberu. <laughs> Seriously. Cambyses. Some people even think Cyrus is referred to um, by Darius the Mede. And there's a scholarly debate as to which one of these fits Darius the Mede. I mean, Ugberu comes in and he helps take over, and he was the general of the army that helped take over Babylon, and then he was for a brief time leading, but then he died shortly after they took over Babylon. And then Cyrus appointed Guberu to be the governor of Babylon, and so he would have potentially been this guy, Darius the Mede, uh, Guberu could have well been a Mede. Ugberu was definitely a Mede. And so, in other words, we're not entirely sure how to put this together, but definitely you can't say Daniel's wrong. Just to, just to be conservative about it. Um, if Darius could reasonably be any of these people, if any one of them could be Darius, then the problem disappears and you can't say Daniel's wrong. I may not be able to tell you for sure who he was. I think the popular view is that he was Guberu. Um, he was a Guber. But... But I think we can simply go, okay, look, it's not a problem. This guy, Darius the Mede, definitely fits a description of somebody that was in charge at Babylon, and we know somebody was, and we have a couple options of who they were. So we move on. So we move on. Um, Daniel actually has really good history in it, and it's one of the reasons why you should believe that the book of Daniel was written when Daniel wrote it in about 530 BC. Let me give you some examples. Daniel says that Nebuchadnezzar built Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar, not somebody else, Nebuchadnezzar. Now he was not, it wasn't that Babylon didn't exist and the never, no, it had existed for a long time. But Nebuchadnezzar did a lot of building and he did a lot of bragging. Daniel records literally long strings of Nebuchadnezzar bragging and boasting about how awesome he is, about this awesome Babylon he built and how awesome, it's like listening to a Donald Trump rally and Trump talking about himself. Man, I could build walls like no, I mean, Nebuchadnezzar's like, I built the wall, this amazing wall is like, no, I have such a good brain. So, Anyway, so he goes on and he brags and brags. But check this out. The East India House inscriptions, which are dated from 604 to 562 BC, that are actually before the time of Daniel being written in 530 BC. These were found, and there's several of them, but they had six columns of Babylonian writing. You're looking at some of those columns right now. Six columns of them. All Nebuchadnezzar bragging about his building projects in Babylon. Daniel's even accurate about the character of Nebuchadnezzar, about not only what he did, but the way he acted about what he did. This is, this is detailed accuracy, historically, that is pretty intense. He's also accurate about the existence of Belshazzar. Now, what you have to know about these two facts, Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, is Daniel knew about them, whereas later historians did not. Oh, they knew Nebuchadnezzar existed, but they didn't know he built Babylon. Someone existing in, in 165 um, BC, in 130 BC, wasn't going to be writing and knowing about these facts, not reasonably anyways, because the historians of those times weren't recording these facts. So how is they, this person going to know more than the historians? No, that wouldn't seem very reasonable. 
So Daniel has very good history. One scholar actually put it this way. Let me read you this quote. I love it. We shall presumably never know how our author learned that the new Babylon was the creation of Nebuchadnezzar, as the excavations have proved, and that Belshazzar was functioning as king when Cyrus took Babylon. We'll never know. He was there. <laughs> He's an eyewitness. Of course he has these little details that other people wouldn't have known. He was there when it happened. That would be the most reasonable explanation. Daniel's good history continues. He says that the capture of Babylon happened without any significant resistance. That, and, but he gives no details, right? He just, he just kind of passes it on. He's like in Daniel 5. He's like, yeah, they were partying. They were drinking from the temple um, you know, items out of alcohol and stuff. And they were toasting to their false gods. And so God wrote on the wall, says, Belshazzar, you're going down. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And tonight you will lose the kingdom. And that night he was slain and the kingdom was passed over to the Medes and Persians. That's what Daniel says. Real short summary of it, right? Well, this is exactly what happened. Multiple historical sources support that this is what happened. Here's a photograph from the Polaroid of the time. Um, what they actually did was Cyrus's army, while Belshazzar felt secure and the Babylonians felt very secure inside their heavily walled, very fortified city, Belshazzar's army went up river from them and they redirected the Euphrates so that some of the water from the Euphrates was pouring in other directions. This caused the level of the river to go down enough that they were to circumvent the river and walk into the city and avoid the wall. So here's a artist rendition of Babylon from the time. And you can see the, the Euphrates River goes straight through the city. And there's the walls of the city. Well, what they, they just they lowered the, the level of the river. Pretty creative thinking. And then they were able to walk right into the city. So they skipped the walls, they skipped the fortifications, and they basically took Babylon without significant resistance, without the typical siege and wait years type of activity that they would have normally done. And so it was lost in one night. In one night. This is what history records. I love that. I just love that. Just little details that Daniel's got right. This is good history. Daniel also has good history when it comes to the laws of the Medes and Persians, that they were inviolable or that you couldn't violate them. You can't violate the laws of the Medes and Persians. You see, other kings and kingdoms, they could make a law, change their mind, and then say, you know what? I take that law back and I make a new one. But not the Medes and Persians. In, in their system, the law is over the king. The king can make a law, but he can't break a law. And he can't change it. That's very interesting. So this is recorded in Daniel 6. Um, Siculus confirms this, and he's a Diodorus Siculus. He's a Roman historian from about 50 BC. So this is, this, is, this is an old dead guy here, and he's confirming that this is exactly the way it was. It ended, actually, if you remember in Daniel 6, with Daniel in the lion's den. Right? King, make a command. This is to Darius the Mede. Make a command that everyone has to only pray to you for a certain period of time. Maybe this was to consolidate Babylon after the recent attacks. You know, they just conquered it, just took over Babylon. And so then Daniel's, I'm going to keep praying to the God of heaven. So three times a day, he would go out into his balcony and he would pray. He wouldn't bow down. A good word for us when it comes to our culture telling us, you just stop, stop this aspect of your Christianity. Just be quiet about this one issue. Daniel's like, nope, I'm going to go out there and I'm going to live for, live for the Lord. So he goes out and he prays. And he is what? He's thrown into the lion's den. But the king realizes that he's been tricked, that this whole thing was a plot to get Daniel thrown. And he likes Daniel. Daniel's good. He does good stuff for the king. You're, you're, you're useful, Daniel. So he's like, oh, no, I wish I could change it, but I can't because the law is the law. So he puts Daniel in the lion's den. He closes it up and he has to wait. The sentence has to go through. And so at the end of the day, after the sentence goes through, they bring Daniel back out and then Daniel is released, and then the men are thrown in, them, their wives, and their children. Now, Daniel didn't do this, by the way. This was, this was a Medo-Persian authority who did this. Um, so, Siculus confirms this. Also, the book of Esther confirms it when it talks about the whole Haman incident and about them attacking the Jews. I won't give you the whole story, but let's just say it confirms the story, and there's the verses for you. Um, now, this is interesting. <laughs> the, the book Daniel even is accurate about Persian methods of punishment. The Persians were known to keep lions. And where did they throw Daniel? Into the lion's den. They were known to capture and keep lions. It's just something the Persians did. 
it said something about the prowess of the kingdom and things like that. And they were known to punish wives and children of offenders with the offenders. It's just historically accurate. Now, there's other cultures that wouldn't do this. There's other cultures we have no reason to think they, they would do this sort of thing. There's other details, too. But I'm, I'm just trying to give you guys an overview because I'll tell you what. I looked and looked um, online for what I'm doing for you here today. And I couldn't find it. And I, I, there's a lot of text documents that are out there. They're a little difficult to read. And sometimes they don't pull together. I think they don't pull together maybe the arguments that I would want to see fought against. Because I would consider these to be the chief attacks on Daniel. I want, to, I want to face the strongest punches of critics, not the weakest. I want to face their strongest ones. And then I'm not going to worry about the weakest ones. That's my attitude about it. Um, and so I want to produ- produce this uh, quick, to the point, boom, boom, boom. Just give it all to you if you ever... You know, feel like, oh boy, I need to hear that again. It'll be online, and you can you can listen to it again. It might take me a few weeks to get it up there, <laughs> but it'll be up there. All right, so that's number two. Now we'll deal with number three. This will be the most uh, probably difficult part for tonight for you to to soak in, and then it gets real easy and smooth after after number three, four, five, six, seven. Just get real real simple. Now the book of Daniel is actually written in multiple languages. Uh, chapters 1 through 2-4 are written in Hebrew. Chapters 2-4 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And then the rest of the book is written in Hebrew. Then there's also several Greek and Persian words in the book in different places. So you've got a total of four languages represented in this one book. Now we just read it in English, so we wouldn't know this. But, but that's where the next round of critics' attacks come onto Daniel. Um, Critics will speak with great authority that these languages, they prove beyond any reasonable shadow of doubt, beyond any other possibility, that Daniel was written after 332 BC when Alexander the Great became the new world emperor and he brought the Greek language throughout the known world. And that's why there's Greek in Daniel because it's after the Greeks were in control. So that means Daniel was written in 165 after the prophetic events happen. Does that make sense? They'll say it with great authority. I even remember hearing this. If I can remember correctly, I think it was in my college classes I heard this. Um, Not that it was a college class about Daniel. College professors like throwing these things out in the middle of talking about, like, music theory. (laughs) If I remember correctly. Um, But they rarely give the details. And the the truth often is in the details. And so we're going to look at some of those details tonight. Daniel's Persian words, we'll start with the Persian words. Daniel's Persian words, actually, um, there's only 15 in the whole book. There's only 15 words of Persian in the whole book. And they will say that these prove an old date that Daniel was written, you know, 165. Except when you get into the details, you can no longer support that perspective. Let Let me give them to you. They all relate to government. Every one of these 15 words relates to government. Names of Names of political offices, things like that. You know, if I said Congress, there's an English word that relates to government. If I said a bill, passing a bill, that's an English word that relates to government, you know. And these words help us identify where he was and when he wrote. Now, Daniel, in case you haven't read the book, he, he worked in the Persian government. This was the final government he worked for. After the Medes and Persians took over, he still was in office. He was still an authority in the land. He worked in the Persian government. It makes sense that he would know the words that they used in the Persian government where he worked. That makes sense. You know, when you get a job, you work at Starbucks, you learn Starbucks lingo, right? There's certain words that you learn because you're working there. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing. But far from attacking the book of Daniel, when you get the details, you wonder what the critics are complaining about. Six of these words are not found any time after 330 B.C., What does this say? That this probably was written before 330 BC, not after. And all 15 of these words are what's called Old Persian. You know, like Old English. Old English is an actual thing. Ye Old English. I mean, if you really actually read Old English, Old Old English, it's hard to understand. I mean, you need a translator. It's hard to understand what it means. Well, Old Persian is an actual thing. If Daniel was written in 165 BC... He would have probably used Middle Persian because that's the kind of Persian that was being used then. 
So this is evidence for Daniel, not evidence against Daniel. So you wonder what they're complaining about. So then you've got Daniel's Greek words. Daniel's Greek words are probably the, the biggest stink is made about the Greek in Daniel. And this is what I had heard specifically was Daniel's Greek. How does Daniel have Greek if Alexander the Great hadn't conquered yet? Huh? Mike? And I'm like a 19-year-old in college. Like, I don't know, man. He's like, I don't know if I can find Daniel. You know? um, so let's get into the details because the truth is in the details. There are four Greek words. You know, the way they talk about it, you'd think there were like 150 Greek words and like half the books written in Greek or something like that. There are literally four Greek words, and all of them are the names of musical instruments. Uh, Santern is one example. They are also transliterations. They are not Greek written onto the page. They're transliterations, meaning they're written in either Aramaic or they're written in Hebrew. They're not actually Greek. A transliteration, yeah. It's it's when like if I take um, uh, yeah, if I take a Chinese term like uh, what's a Chinese word? Anybody? Shishi, and I spell it S H I S H I. That's a transliteration. Although if it was going to spell it in Chinese, I'd spell it with whatever weird characters in Chinese mean she she, which which is like a little stick figure of a girl, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> So, so it's a transliteration, meaning that it's not actually Greek. It's rather a word in his language that comes probably from a Greek word originally. That's important. Let's look at these words. One of them is symphonia. It was actually used by Pythagoras about 530 BC. It was pictured, it's, it's considered a bagpipe, actually. <laughs> it was pictured in a Hittite relief in 1500 BC. But the critics are going to claim a couple things. One... See, they're going to claim that Greeks, uh, Greek means that it was a time after Alexander the Great conquered. The other thing they claim is that these words didn't exist until the 2nd century BC. But yet we've found examples of them actually existing. But you're like, but don't the critics know? I, I don't think that they want to know because they're committed. I mean, they, they act like we're the ones holding, clinging to our dying faith. It's like, no, you're clinging to your dying skepticism. That's, that's what's happening. Did you have a question, sir? No. Okay. All right, so then there's another word, katharos, and that is found in Homer's work in the 8th century BC, before the time of Daniel. So two of these words are before the time of Daniel, and then finally, santerin is not known. I, no, we don't have an example of this word from before the 2nd century, except in the book of Daniel. This is what you call an argument from silence. We don't exactly have a big, full account of Greek from before the second century. We just don't. Most of the work's missing. The majority of it's not there. We've got a lot of Greek, but not, not even half. And so when you say, ah, we don't see this word, therefore it must not have existed, therefore it must have existed in the second century. But here's what the critic does. They look at Daniel, which reasonably is dated to 530 BC. Then they find another work, and they go, ah, this word's in the second century, and it's here in Daniel, so Daniel must be second century. They just, they automatically use anything to correct the biblical text. You just assume that the Bible's wrong, assume that the Bible's spurious, assume that the Bible's sketchy, and they make the standard here for the Bible and here for every other historical text. And it's very consistent. Inconsistency is what it is. So I, I would just think, okay, you've got one Greek word that we, we don't find. But we understandably don't find it, because it's, it's just an argument from silence. We also know a few things. We know that Babylon, before 530 BC, that employed Greek workers, Greek slaves, Greek merchants, and Greek mercenaries. Mercenaries. That's like a, that's like a fighting merchant. <laughs> Watch out, man. He's <laughs> like, that's as low as it goes. I'll take it. Um, yes mercenaries. Um, so we know that they employed these people. We also know that Greek pottery was in, Bab in Babylon, in that region, by 530 BC. It had been imported, Greek pottery. We know that Semitic words had made it from that region into Greece before Alexander the Great. So in other words, there was word trading that was going on. So we have Greek people, Greek skill sets, Greek pottery. We can't rule out Greek instruments at the time of Daniel. 
We even know that when they were taken captive by the Babylonians, the Babylonians asked the Jews to sing them songs. They requested music from their captives. So it may have been a, a thing that Babylon did. They said, yeah, we want music from this culture, music from that culture, bring us some instruments. We also know that instruments tend to carry their names with them wherever they go. If I play on the piano, you see this is, this is not an English word. Piano is not an English word. Viola, mandolin, ukulele, that's the correct pronunciation, which I don't use because nobody believes me. A djembe, or djembe, some people call it. These are all instruments that have been imported into our culture from other cultures. Now, I don't speak any sort of African dialects, but I still say djembe, because when musical instruments travel, their original names usually stick, or some close transliteration thereof. And so that's what we see in Daniel. So the Greek is actually, um, it's a mountain out of a molehill, which is why they don't give the details. What does the Greek really tell us? It's actually the lack of Greek that supports an early date. Think about this. By 165 BC, when they say Daniel was written, after these things happened, after some of it happened anyway, there had been 165 years of Greek culture, Greek people, and Greek as the lingua franca, the language of the people, the common tongue. This is the, this is the, the language people speak. Now, in 530 BC, anybody want to guess what the common tongue was? It wasn't Hebrew. It was Aramaic. That was the common tongue, which would explain why Daniel has portions written in Aramaic. That, was, that, per, that happened to pertain more to the Gentiles. <laughs> so, ironically. Um, but no, in, in 165, Greek was the common tongue. And here we have the lack of Greek. Four words, are, the, the, all these words are related to instruments. Um, the, these words seem to be relating to um, a actual early date, not a late date. It seems consistent, doesn't it? All these attacks, I mean, I'll be honest with you. If I find an attack I don't, I don't have any explanation for, I'm going to put it right out there. But all these attacks seem to fall on their face. So we move on. The Aramaic in Daniel. Again, I said it's the lingua franca. There you go. That does sound like something you could order at a Mexican restaurant, but it's not. Um, it was the language of the people, the common tongue, in the 6th century B.C., but critics say that the Aramaic in the book of Daniel, for several, several chapters worth, over half the book, they say that it's from the 2nd century. They go, it's 2nd century, and it is from the wrong location. It's from the wrong part of the world, this particular Aramaic. Now, they said this, and they said this for many years. This accusation, starting in the 1800s and continuing and continuing for quite a long time, in fact, they still say it, but often critics are unaware of the newest scholarship. Often critics are actually, once they get their criticism, they just repeat it. They hear their, their professor repeat it, so they repeat it. So that person comes and he repeats it. And they just sort of say the same things they've always heard all along. But recent discoveries of 5th century Aramaic documents have revealed some interesting stuff. Now before this, we didn't have a lot of Aramaic to compare it to. Like how do you compare what Daniel wrote to ancient Aramaic? Well, we don't really have a lot. But recent discoveries have shown this. Daniel is Old Aramaic, and more specifically, it's Imperial Aramaic, an official or literary dialect that tended to be used in courts and in the types of words. I mean, like if you went to um, a government meeting, you're going to hear certain certain language being used, you know, that you that you don't tend to hear on the street when you're ordering your tacos, and the same type of thing. It's actually Imperial Aramaic. This is amazing. Now, some of these words, Daniel's Aramaic, were actually mistranslated in the second century. In the second century, you have something called, um, forgive me if this is a little bit complex, I apologize, but you're welcome to ask me questions afterwards. Um, in the second century, they, they finished the translation of the Septuagint. The Septuagint was taking all of the, the, the Jewish Bible and translating it into Greek. They did this in Egypt. It was the, the request of the king. I, I, want, I want, it was for the, the Library of Alexandria. We want all these texts to fill our library. Hey, get us a Greek translation of the, uh, of the Jewish scriptures. So they finished this in the second century sometime. Well, they mistranslated some of these words from Daniel. So if Daniel's second century Aramaic, why did second century translators mishandle them? Because it's not. 
That's, that would be the explanation. The conclusion is Daniel's Aramaic is not only appropriate for 530 BC, but it's imperially appropriate. <laughs> it's appropriate for the specific positions that Daniel is claimed to have in the book. Now, I think this is the, the last thing we'll deal with on languages. The word Chaldeans. Daniel uses the word Chaldeans in the book of Daniel uh, in two different ways. One, to talk about a whole group of people, the Chaldeans. This is a group of people. And he uses it in another way, and that's to talk about a group of officials in the court who were called Chaldeans. And he lists them with magicians, sorcerers, astrologers, and Chaldeans. And so there were some sort of um, wise guys, you know, some sort of court counselors. They were in some sort of official position. Um, now, what the... Um, what the critics say is that Chaldeans didn't mean astrologers or something like that until the second century. And this proves that Daniel was written late. Um, you can read about this, of course, in Daniel 2. But, as so often is the case, criticism usually is based on too little information, not too much. Herodotus in the 5th century, he used the term Chaldeans in a similar sense as Daniel. Herodotus is considered the father of history. He was not a a Jew or a believer. <laughs> no, he's a Greek historian. He used this term in a similar sense as Daniel did just a hundred years later. We also have Diodorus Siculus. There he is again. He just looks really tired. He was that guy that always fell asleep in class. He used it in the seventh century. Well, he didn't use it in the seventh century. Rather, he referred to its use being, being done in the 7th century as he was writing his histories, that Chaldeans were a sect, not just a people group in that time. And so that, that falls short. Now, this is one argument after another, after another, after another, and this should be impressive, I think, to us about Daniel. What happens at this point is treading water, the critics starts just reaching for whatever they can. And so they say things like this. Daniel was written by multiple authors. Okay, fine, Mike. You forced our hand that some parts of Daniel have to be written in 530 BC. But the prophetic stuff can't be, so it must have been written later. The problem with this is it's completely arbitrary. It's, I'm just going to say, oh, oh, but that was written later. But now you're not even looking for proof anymore. You're just making stuff up. There's no strong support. I can't even find arguments people actually make. They just say, oh, multiple authors. But I actually look, and I can't find online people arguing with an actual evidence-based case for multiple authors in Daniel. And here's what we can say about multiple authors. Because we look at, we, we survey throughout the book. We can say this. If there were multiple authors, they were multiple authors in the 6th century B.C., there's nothing in the book that says 2nd century. Everything in it says 6th century, 6th century, 530 BC, years before this stuff happened. So the multiple author thing is like a, it's like, what do they call that? A, a red herring, a red herring, which is the, the, um, the fancy way of saying, like, let's say you're being chased by dogs and you grab a dead fish and you drag it across your path and throw it into the bushes. So when the dogs follow your path they, and they go off to the side and they chase the red herring, it's just to throw you off the trail. There's no real benefit of it. There's no real thing to debate there. It's just a distraction tactic, really. Number five, we've only got three more left. It's much easier from here on out, by the way. They say the theology of Daniel is too advanced. Oh, dear. What does that even mean? <laughs> What does that even mean? Is this is like a this is like part of like maybe a result of evolutionary beliefs that that people were like uber stupid and then they slowly got smarter and smarter and smarter over time and and it's I remember seeing a a thing one time where they were talking about how cavemen like one caveman could only count to three and the next caveman could count to four and you're like like really like you think that's how we develop like it's like three but i don't know what's next you know and the expert's like four yeah no there's like you count or you don't count like this is just how it works like you have theology or you don't have theology daniel it doesn't take thousands of years for theology to develop yes as we get more of the bible we get more information which means we get a more detailed theology that's inevitable but that doesn't mean that that theology changed over time it just simply was revealed more in more detail well there's three main targets they have on this they say that daniel gives us too much information about angels 
too much detail about the Messiah. We'll get to that next time. And too much about judgment and resurrection. They say final judgment and the resurrection, the Messiah and angels are in too much detail in the book of Daniel. I've never heard anybody make a case for this. I've just heard them say that it's the case. I'm not going to go through every, I'm not going to do a whole theology thing now on angels and the Messiah and judgment, all that. Let me just say this. Every one of these themes starts in the book of Genesis. Genesis. Genesis, right? There, <laughs> these themes are also in multiple other books that we know were written before Daniel. Let me give you some examples. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, Job, etc., 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 as the king and I would say. To suggest that in all these books, we don't, we don't have advanced theology about angels or about resurrections and judgments and stuff like that, like, this is just... This is so stupid. Like, I don't know what to say. You can't say this and hold a straight face unless you're saying it to someone who doesn't know the word of God. And then you're using their ignorance to try and fool them. So we move on. Number six, they finally say this. I don't even want to include this because it feels like a waste of time, but it's one of those things they say. So they say it's in the wrong section of the Bible. Um, well, <laughs> as if you could ignore the avalanche of evidence we've already seen. They say Daniel's in the wrong section of the Bible. Daniel was included in the writings instead of in the prophets. So as we group different parts of the Bible, we have the law, the books of Moses, right? Then we have the writings. That would include, in this case, Daniel and some other various books. Then we have the prophets, right? like Isaiah, Jeremiah. Why wasn't Daniel in the prophets? This is To them, this is a sort of subtle hint. Like the Jews are trying to like throw it out there. Just so you know, Daniel's not for real. So we put it in the writings because we all know that the Jews thought whatever was in the writings was a forgery. Like, I don't even understand. Like, even if it was in the writings, like this doesn't prove anything. It doesn't, it literally doesn't prove a thing. Uh, some people would say, well, maybe Daniel was in the writings because Daniel's office was not as a prophet to the people of Israel. He was primarily not considered a prophet in his tasks. He wasn't like Isaiah or Jeremiah going town to town, giving the words of God. He operated in the Babylonian kingdom. He operated in a secular kingdom and he interpreted dreams and he, he did have some, some visions. So some people would say that, but there's a lot better of an answer even than that. Putting Daniel in the writings is actually a fourth century AD tradition. Daniel wasn't put in the writings for a very long time. He was previously considered part of the prophets. It's funny how every one of these things just falls on its own face. In the Septuagint, Daniel is included in which section? The prophets. In the New Testament, Daniel is called a prophet and considered one of the prophets in multiple passages. So in first century AD, he was considered a prophet. Origen in 254 AD, he believed that Daniel was part of the prophets in his list of biblical books. He put them right in there with the prophets. Mileto of Sardis in 70 AD, considered Daniel part of the prophets. Josephus, in 90 AD, considered Daniel part of the prophets, not some other section of scripture. So what we have is we have later people coming up with traditions where they're dividing the scripture into other categories and various other ways of uh, separating it, but it's, it ends up being an argument that falls on its face. And finally, we have number seven, the last one, straws. As in grasping at straws. As in the old, the old saying from the poet that said that a dying man will grasp even for straws when he's drowning. What's the point? The vision is a guy drowning and he reaches up and he just, he grabs at a straw of like, of, 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 of grain, you know, the, the stalk of the grain and he goes down, but he won't let go of it, will he? No, it's all I got. I'm not going to let go of the only thing I got. But that's not going to hold up your pinky, but it's all I got. And this is what happens. Uh, you will never come to an end of the skeptics' attacks on the Bible. They could dismiss everything I've said. They'll tell me, oh, you, oh, Wikipedia answers that, Mike. You're like, right, right. There's a reason why you can't use Wikipedia on your college papers or you'll get failed. Um, there's a good reason for that, right? Because <laughs> when I edit the Wikipedia article, it agrees with me. And then when you go and edit it, now it agrees with you. That's, that's not really good. Um, 
No, but they will just always, always, always have another attack. And at this point, we realize again, like we talked earlier, it's, there's scales on the eyes. There's, there's a darkness that's there that's not intellectual. It's hiding behind an intellectual image, but it is a spiritual darkness that's there. Um, there's a few things, though, that I want to share with you guys. There's a few other things to point out about Daniel. One is in the Qumran scrolls. There were several copies of Daniel found, a large number of copies of Daniel found, meaning that it was, he was considered very important to the Qumran community. They lifted him up very high. The oldest of these is conservatively, conservatively dated to 125 BC. Now, these Qumran scrolls, they were not found until 1948. They were not published right away. It was many years before the particular Daniel scroll. I think it was in the 80s when they finally published it because some scholars are knuckleheads and they uh, are too slow to let these discoveries be expressed to other people. So 125 BC, conservative, could be older than that. This is simply not enough time. It takes more than 40 years to copy and circulate, to canonize a book and consider it part of your authoritative scriptures. If it had been written at that point in time, in 165 BC, how was it that in the Qumran community by the Dead Sea in Israel, they had copies of it set aside like scripture? And it was made somehow into the Septuagint, probably before the Qumran community did their copy. That's the Greek translation. It was done by 132 BC, and it was in Egypt. So here we have in Egypt copies of Daniel being made as scripture, and we have in Israel copies of Daniel being made as scripture. And you want to say that... that 40 years prior to that, it was being written. Yet, it was written by the most amazing forger to, known to man who managed to get all the Greek out of his lingo and use the right imperial Aramaic from the time of Daniel who knew about things that historians of his time had forgotten. I mean, that's, that's a miracle. It's, it doesn't make any sense. So what's the point? What's the point? We have every reason to think that Daniel was written in the 6th century by Daniel. Which means this. Those prophecies we've been going over and will continue to go over for the next couple times we meet. It means that those prophecies are really prophetic. It means God has spoken and that God has spoken through a Jewish prophet. This same Jewish prophet who affirms Jeremiah. In the book of Daniel, he says that Jeremiah speaks of the Lord. Oh, so he just so if he's legit and he just grabbed and legitimized Jeremiah too. Who also legitimizes the covenants and says that what God spoke through Moses, Moses was God speaking through Moses. So what you see with the Bible is you, these authors grab hands and they hold each other and they go, hey, you want me? You're going to get them too. You legitimize me, you're going to legitimize them too. Daniel brings his friends to the party, is what I'm saying. Daniel will not come by himself. If Daniel was written in 530 BC, there is a God, and he has spoken in the Jewish Bible through the Jewish prophets, who also affirm the other Jewish prophets, who affirm Moses, Genesis, and all of that. And what is it all ultimately talking about? Jesus Christ. I believe, I believe, and I don't think that this is too bold of a statement. You can prove that God exists. You can prove that God has spoken through his holy word in the Bible and that any other explanation falls flat. This is a lot of brain work to do, but I think that it's worth doing. <laughs> and I think that no matter where you are, I mean, there's those who approach God, they simply come to him in prayer and they meet the Lord and they encounter God and their lives are transformed. They put their faith in Jesus Christ and they have their testimony and that is awesome. And There's nothing lacking in that. And there are those who, they, they take one, whatever branch of research, they study the history of it, they study the archaeology, they study the, the unity of the text, they, they study prophecy. I mean, you name it. They study the life of Jesus, evidence for the resurrection. Or they just look at the testimony of Christianity. They just look at the worldview of Christianity and compare it to other religions, and they're like, whoa, this is legit. And it seems like, because truth is true, it's like no matter what direction you poke it from, you know, it reveals itself. And so the scripture does this, and God does this for us. The, the point that we're at now is this, is that, that God has spoken through his holy word, and we need to not miss this. 
we have in the scriptures the most amazing thing on earth. The most amazing thing on earth. I mean, next to a human soul, because we're filled with the spirit, and that's pretty amazing in a whole other way. But the word of God then comes and takes authority over our lives. And I take Daniel and I put it down there and I go, hmm, I'm viewing you like to figure out if you're legit. And the moment I realize it's legit, I go, oh, okay, you got the authority. Now you're viewing me to see if I'm legit. Now I need to submit my life underneath the word of God for its investigation and say, Lord, am I doing what you want? Am I living as you've called me to do? Um, Because you can't just hold out faith in the face of this kind of evidence, I don't think. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the confirmations. And I mean, so many years later, there's all these puzzle pieces for those who are willing to find them. And um, just confirmation of the truth of the scriptures. Lord, we pray this. Help us to live like it's true. To fall under submission to the word of God and to the truths of God. To live for Christ. And to know, Lord, that if what you said about the future happened then, then what you say about the future now will take place. So we can trust, Lord, that you're in control. You're sovereign over our lives. Even in the little things, Lord. And we can just trust you and follow you and serve you. So please help us to do it. Father, we bless you and we worship your holy name. And we lift up and exalt your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.